And turn with me or listen on as I read uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 14 through 38a. I have a, a special reason for ending uh, at a certain point. It, uh, I, I plan to make that clear in the course of the sermon. So I'll just stop off where, uh, well, where I want to stop off in verse 38. So Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, uh, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him uh, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And we'll leave the reading off there and let us pray together. Our father in heaven, we thank you for the preaching of Peter. Indeed, we thank you for all of the writings that we have in the New Testament, which are in themselves a kind of sermon to the churches and to us. We ask you now that by the preaching, uh, which is based upon this text, you would shine new light upon your word and upon our hearts and that you would change us as you change these hearers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you remember from the prior sermon on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the Spirit comes down like a rushing mighty wind. He comes upon these apostles. They become full of his life, full of his power. And as a result of this, they, they take to the streets or uh, perhaps, some have conjectured, uh, they took to the courts of the temple. And there in Jerusalem, they preached to the, to the Jews uh, and, and indeed even converts from every nation, uh, speaking generally. He, he, was speak, he and the apostles were speaking in other tongues. But here, uh, the crowds having gathered, he preaches to them. And we have here, in this sermon, the first real instance of the preaching of the apostles. There's brief references in the Gospels, but this is the real first time that we have uh, what I would call apostolic preaching. Certainly in the sense that uh, Pentecost made these men preachers. Now full of the Spirit, they were able to preach in a way they were not able to before. Well... That leads me uh, to the first point, which is that Peter, in this sermon, was preaching in the spirit. And as he was doing so, his sermon and his preaching becomes a model of true preaching uh, in this point and all the rest. So the first thing that I would notice about true preaching is that it is done in the spirit. This is something that the Apostle Paul says Uh, especially about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He speaks of his coming to them in weakness, fear, and trembling. He didn't come uh, in the might and the wisdom of the world and its eloquence, but he came uh, in the weakness and the foolishness of a preacher of the cross. But he says something which is tremendously important in that uh, that passage. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says not only did he come in the weakness and the foolishness of his own weakness and of the gospel, but that in such a way of preaching, it was a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And that's what we see here. The characteristic mark of spirit-filled preaching is power. We could also add authority. The spirit is at work in the preaching when he is at work. When the, when the preaching deserves to be called spirit-filled because it is full of the spirit, uh, the, the preaching takes on uh, an aspect that is spiritual in the truest sense of the term. In the sense that the spirit is ministering to the preacher, giving him this note of authority, giving him this confidence, giving him this general appeal. But also working upon the hearer such that the hearer is enabled through the preaching to believe that which is preached. It is something which both parties are conscious of, the presence, the power of of the Spirit. Indeed, even we could say the coming of the kingdom through the preaching. This is something that was different, something that was new, something Peter hadn't known. Suddenly he was able by the Spirit, to command the attention of many. He he stood up and addressed these men in such a way that they listened eagerly and intently. Again, the Spirit was working on him. The Spirit was working on them. It was a demonstration of the Spirit and power. 
giving him power to preach and they faith to hear. We notice in this spirit-filled sermon the style of his preaching. The preaching of Peter was direct. He wasn't just speaking in general. He wasn't just contemplating or considering aloud, as some preachers do, a doctrine. He was speaking directly to these men. It's the first thing you notice, and it's a kind of refrain that's throughout the sermon. He says, men of Israel... Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. Listen to me, he's saying. I'm speaking to you directly. My sermon is for you. There's a kind of, I would call, pleading tone throughout this sermon. He is pleading. He's urging something that is also characteristic of uh, what has been called unction. The unction of the Spirit leading the preacher to preach with a note of pleading, with urgency, with earnestness. He deals with them as he speaks to them directly as sinners. Not as good and pleasant people, but as sinners, as those who are guilty and stand condemned before God. He speaks to them as witnesses and presently as hearers. And especially, he speaks to them of the great things God has done Recently among them, the wonderful works of God, Luke calls it. We find a preaching of this sort whenever the Spirit is poured out on the church and on preachers. This was the kind of preaching that you will find among the men of the first great awakening. I notice a strong similarity between their preaching and Peter's, the style, I mean, of their preaching, the willingness to address sinners or or hearers directly as sinners. To speak to men in this way, as they really are, as standing in need of salvation desperately, but equally holding forth and magnifying the power of God to save even people as sinful as we Are we not amazed to see Peter like this? Just a few weeks prior, he cowered at the question of a little girl. He denied Jesus Christ, his Lord. But here he stands boldly before men, proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus, the name he had recently denied. Surely he must have known the danger he placed himself in here. He was not oblivious. It was not the ignorance of what awaited him that emboldened him to preach. No, he stood now as a man who was unafraid, as a man who was willing to suffer and to die for Jesus Christ. He is here bold as a lion. He is, if you like, and if you will allow me to say it, he was the Knox of his own day. John Knox. Not afraid of men. You see, that's what happens when the spirit comes upon The preacher and upon the church, the fear of man vanishes. You find a man who's downright in earnest, pleading with sinners to cry out unto Jesus and be saved. Whatever the cost, whatever the cost to himself, whatever the cost to his hearers. They didn't preach an easy message and they didn't didn't live uh, uh, an easy life. Here was true discipleship being lived out in the life of Peter. But equally important was not just the style or the manner of his preaching, but the content of his preaching, which I would say the Spirit also played a part in. For the outpouring of the Spirit here led to preaching, as it always does, 
not just preaching, but an interest in preaching. God doesn't just raise up preachers, but he raises up hearers. Let me continue to stress that. But preaching of a certain type, of a certain stripe, the style and the manner were one thing, but so too the message. That's what we see in Paul. That's what we see in Peter. The, the demonstration of the spirit and of power is, uh, is only known in the preaching of Christ and him crucified. That's what you'll always find. You'll find this emphasis upon salvation and the gospel. That's what happens when the spirit is working in the preaching. And so we notice as a second point, the first point being uh, preaching in the spirit. The second point being the message of Peter. One of the things that I'm interesting to know, interested to notice here is that we have something of a three-point sermon here. I don't know that Peter meant for it to be a three-point sermon, but, but uh, the modern mind can't help but notice that. But before we look at those three points, let me speak generally about the model or the structure of apostolic preaching in general. Uh, it, the, it had four key elements, and I'm, I'm taking this from F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. The first thing that you notice is uh, in their preaching a declaration that the age of fulfillment has come, that the last days have come, the new covenant has come. Secondly, you find them quoting the Old Testament scriptures in support of this. And so let me stress again, as I said before, these men were expositors. They were preachers of the word, even as they were full of the spirit, even as they had the gift of prophecy and of revelation and of other tongues. They were men in, their pre in the preaching who were expositing the scripture always. And we must never look, beloved, for the spirit where the word of the spirit is not honored and preached. Not the spirit apart from the word, but in and through the word always. So uh, these men as expositors preaching the word as it was, as it existed in those days, the Old Testament scriptures, they preached its true meaning like Ezra. They preached with a conviction of its truth. Uh, again, there was a note of authority that was always present. For what was declared by these men was God's very own words in scripture. They preached always equally with a concern for the hearers. The, the concern that is found as well in the Bible and the, the words of the Old Testament. Oh sinner, why will you die? Why will you not turn and be saved? And thus they applied the truth to their hearer. They, they considered the word of God as a living, ever relevant reality. And that is what gave such urgency to their message and to their preaching. It was the conviction not only that these were the words of God, but that as the word of God, it spoke to men in every age. It was on this basis that they were able to speak to men in their own age. Even as we are able to do so today. Number three, they recounted the main facts of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And number four, they would close with a call to repentance, seeing that is the basic structure. We find here the first two points in his first point. The declaration of the age of fulfillment has come on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. And so he quotes in these verses uh, as the first heading, uh, Joel's prophecy, the first of these three points in verses 14 through 21, he quotes Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, what we read earlier in Joel 2, and then again in Peter's, uh, Peter's sermon. What was the message of Joel? Well, the message of Joel was this, that the last days have come, or that they were coming, excuse me, the last days were coming. And Joel, as a prophet of the Old Testament, looked forward to this. 
But the apostles preached, and Peter here preached, those days as having come. Days of fulfillment. That which Joel looked forward to has come upon you this day. So also, not uh, not only the last days, but the day of the Lord. He speaks of the coming day of the Lord, pointing to Christ and his coming. He spoke of signs and wonders. That the, that the effusion, the outpouring of the Spirit would be accompanied with supernatural gifts, with the miraculous. What was special in the Old Covenant would be general at the turn of the age. You wouldn't just have the prophets prophesying, but you would have all sorts of people doing it. That's what I mean when I say it was general. When the Spirit was poured out, not only uh, did salvation come. But the gifts of the Spirit came. This is something, uh, let me remind you, as I said last time, that was confined to the apostolic period, the signs and the wonders, during which the New Testament was written and completed. However, that was what was happening then. It was happening before their very eyes. The prophecy of Joel being fulfilled. But the great thing, And the most important aspect of Joel's message was not the signs and the wonders or even a preoccupation with the day of the Lord or the last days. It was simply the message of salvation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The focal point, even in those days, was not upon the gifts. Gifts are never the focus. The focal point is salvation itself. For that was uh, the real message and the hope of the prophets. And that's what the signs, the miraculous signs, were evidence of. Namely, God's willingness to save men. Indeed, his presence among them, such that whoever calls on his name will be saved. Is it not evident, in other words, Peter is saying, that God is among us when he is working in this amazing way? Oh yes, but if he's among us, will he not hear us if we cry out to him? For salvation, that was the great thing. God was demonstrating his presence, his willingness to save. That's why the spirit is poured out. That's why Christ the Lord has come bringing in these last days. It's so that men would know, men of all types, men of all nations, that whoever, indeed all flesh, might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That is a salvation which must be preached and believed and experienced by men. Men must come now into a living contact with the living God. And so this naturally becomes the stimulus for missions and preaching, the outpouring of the Spirit. The emphasis on, uh, again, Joel's message, whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Uh, That was the very thing they were tasked to preach. And this becomes the basis of the church's formation, no longer confined to one nation, but as comprising disciples from every nation. And Peter is saying, this is that. Precisely what Joel said would come has come. Don't you see it? And don't you see the truth of what Joel predicted? That any man might cry unto God and be saved. We have... Uh, Then a a model here for the true exposition of the scriptures and the preaching. Again, indicating its true meaning in a personal way to the hearers. He's not just interested in saying, you know, Joel said this and, you know, well, this actually happened. But he's speaking to them. He's saying, do you realize what this means for you? That's always the task of the preacher. Showing the hearers the relevance, not only of 
the words of Scripture, but the facts of Scripture in the very moment that those words are proclaimed. Always applying the Scriptures to the hearer and then calling them as a response. Uh, calling them, rather, in, uh, calling them to respond to the message that is preached. Following that is a second point. Peter preached the facts of the gospel. The facts of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verses 22 through 28. That's the second point. And that really is the, the focus of apostolic preaching. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, look at what he says. This is the second heading, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. I speak of him, Peter says. That's the task of the preacher. To speak of him. To tell men of Jesus. Who he is, what he's done. He's the Lord who's come. Just as Joel said he would. He's the Lord whom men must call upon if they would be saved. A man, Peter says, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. A man who was crucified. God handing him over. God determining beforehand that he should die in such a way as this. Oh, uh, Peter is saying, don't see the plan of God frustrated in the death of Jesus. Just the opposite. And just the way he preached the apostasy of Judas. It was the will of God that Judas should apostatize. So here, don't be discouraged. Recognize that Jesus, the, Jesus being crucified was the very will of God. In order that men might be saved. Find and see your salvation in a crucified Savior. That was the preaching of Peter. But at the same time. Look how pointed his message becomes. He's glorifying. He's vindicating the acts of God. He's glorying in a crucified Savior. And yet he says at the same time. In the most pointed way. I think, uh, I think any preacher has ever done. He says you have crucified him he died at your hands it was your actions it was your sins it was your desire that put him to death yes this jesus was crucified and put to death by the will of god by the hands of men he died for sinners at the hands of sinners but that's not the end of the story thank god for God raised him up, Peter says. Death itself could not hold him, he being who he was, the very Son of God, the Lord. No, it was not possible that Jesus, having died, even in such a way as he died, it was not possible that he should remain under the power of death. It was inevitable that he should be raised by the very power and the will of God. Death could not hold him, he says. And so once more, in declaring this, he points to the message of Scripture in verse 25 to support his claim. Again, see these men as expositors. This time, Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 16, excuse me. Now, wasn't that called the golden psalm? I think it was, though I'm not sure. What is the message of Psalm 16? God will not forsake his servant to the place of the dead. David predicted he won't leave him under the power of death. He won't leave him in the place of the dead. No, he will raise him up into his presence once more, even to, the, to his right hand. He will make him full of joy in his presence, which leads him to the final point in verses 29 through 
36. And that is the conclusion or the consequence of such facts. It was not, once, uh, once more we see men and brethren, it was not of David that this was said. That he should not remain under the power of death, but be raised up by the power of God into the presence of God. No, it wasn't of David. For David's tomb, uh, in such days, I don't know if it's true anymore, but in those days they knew exactly where David was buried. And that tomb was not empty. But the tomb of Jesus was. Even then, the tomb of Jesus was empty and Jesus was raised by the power of God. Jesus lived in the presence of God. David was not speaking of himself. David was speaking, uh, Peter tells us, as a prophet, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his own body, according to the flesh, uh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was not speaking of himself, but of his son, the son of David, the seed of David, the coming king. And he looked forward not only to the death of Christ, but to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Yes, this Jesus, Peter says, God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Verse 32, he's not dead, he's alive. And having gone to the Father, Peter says, in the new life he now enjoys as the resurrected Lord being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. That's the explanation. That's, that's how we know that what Joel said was coming true. It wasn't a mere conjecture. It wasn't that Peter was suddenly enabled to preach with a new power. No, it wasn't even that. It was that Jesus Christ went to the Father. And having gone to the Father, he bestowed and endowed the, the, the church with the gift of the Spirit. He received the Spirit and he poured out the Spirit as the resurrected Lord. And by the way, I would say as an aside, in response to uh, questions about something I said last time about believers in the Old Covenant being full of the Spirit, but, but believers in the New Covenant being full of the Spirit too. Well, let me say this. You say, what's the difference? I'll, I'll tell you what the difference is. It could be summed up like this. Now the Spirit comes to the church as from the resurrected Lord. And that was not true in the Old Covenant. Here was an untold blessing, an unknown blessing to receive the Spirit from on high, from Jesus Christ. He having died and been raised in the presence of the Father. Yes, that was something different. That was something beyond. Here was an experience of grace and power the church had not known before. And once again, he supports this with scripture. Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting Psalm 110. And that leads to the conclusion, not only of the third point, but of the sermon. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Know it assuredly. Be sure about it. Be certain. Let there be no doubt about it anymore. This one, uh, so many of these men, uh, I remember Ryle saying, so many of these men were the very men who were saying, let him be crucified. 
who were conspiring to be sure that he would be crucified and, and who made it so. And now Peter, Peter preaching to them saying, the very one whom you rejected, God has accepted. And he has declared assuredly through his resurrection and by the empty tomb that he is not only Lord, but Christ. You killed him, but God raised him up to the highest place. David himself predicted it many times. So too Joel and many others. The scriptures are full of this. This was the hope of Israel now fulfilled. The scriptures, the very scriptures that predicted not only his coming, but his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the spirit, the great facts of salvation now accomplished, now experienced, now enjoyed. Not only in Jerusalem, but soon in the whole world. And now, what David said of him has come to pass. He's not only, he not only has died, he not only is, was raised and ascended to the Father, but now he's in heaven reigning and ruling and building his church. Rejected of men, but accepted of God. And now, what of those who rejected him? We notice then as a third point, the effects upon the hearers. What we notice is strong conviction. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's something that you also notice when the spirit comes upon the preaching. When men are really listening. They are made to see their true state. Again, the very men who were crying out, let him be crucified. Who conspired that it would be so. Now we're made to see their folly and their error and their sin. They were made to feel by the spirit. At work in them through the preaching. That they are sinners. Directly, personally. They were cut to the heart. The spirit you might say cut their heart in two. It was the spirit that produced the conviction of sin in the heart of these sinners. As he always does. And here we see. What we mean by that when we talk about conviction being the result of true spirit filled preaching conviction is not a small feeling of remorse. We hit, we have in our heart in some way. I wish I hadn't done that or something like that. No, that's sorrow after the world. The world is capable of that kind of sorrow. It isn't even I would go further an overwhelming sense that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, it goes even beyond that. The true enormity of our sin and the horror of it only occurs when the soul is made to see and to feel the part that it played at Calvary's cross. When men are made to see that it was by my sin and it was by my malice that Jesus Christ was crucified. I was the one who or, or, or let me try to say that another way. My sin is what drove him there. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. And what we notice here is that such a conviction, when truly felt, is not so easily shaken. It doesn't uh, let the sinner off so easily. In fact, it grips a man so fast he cannot break free, not of his own power. It makes him desperate, uh, near insane. It cuts his heart so he cries aloud. What shall we do, they say. In essence, they were saying, I can't stand it any longer, Peter. 
seeing now my sin, the true enormity, the horror of it, my part in Calvary, I cannot escape this sense of conviction. I see now clearly that I am a sinner, no worse than a sinner. For I played a part in Christ's crucifixion. And can there be any hope for such a man? That's the cry of the sinner under the power of the preaching. This is what the Puritans called compunction. The sense of guilt which drives a man to despair of himself. To see himself as utterly hopeless. As a criminal in God's court. The soul is emptied of all feelings of self-righteousness and pride. And is brought to the very depths of self-abasement. Oh, tell me, he says. Can anything be done for such a man? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything that can be done to lessen my guilt? To ease these feelings of terror and pangs of conscience? What shall we do? And it seemed now they were almost past hope. It seemed so to them. For if they rejected Christ as he dwelt among them. And even played a part in his death. Could there be any hope for them now? That's the thought that occurred to them. Do you preach to us, Peter, only to torment us, only to enslave us and to cast us into a prison of our own horrors and our own sin? Or do you offer us anything that might really help us? And that leads us to the final point, and that is Peter's answer in response to them. The answer is longer than we will presently consider. The, the, answer, the full answer will bring us into the next chapter or, or the, next, um, the next sermon, rather. His full answer brings the church in view. But like John before him and Jesus after him, I want to focus solely on his first word, and that is repent. What shall we do? They cry out under the terrors and the pangs of a guilty conscience. And his answer to them is what John's was, what Jesus was, and all the apostles and all the preachers who are worthy of the name. Repent. Repent and you'll be saved. Seeing our sin for what it is, owning it as sinful beyond measure. What is there to do but to confess it and turn from it? Oh, you who forsook him, forsake him no more. That's what he's saying. Repent. Give up your sinful hatred of the Son of God and embrace him as Savior and Lord. Implicit, too, was the thought of faith. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Faith in Jesus. For he had just said, having quoted Joel, that whoever cries upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And how clear he was. That name was Jesus. Yes, and would these men cry out to him now? Would they find in him no longer an enemy, but a friend of sinners and a savior? For there is no other name, Peter will later say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name on heaven or, uh, or, or on earth by which men may be saved, but that of Jesus. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Do you understand the scandal of that to the Jewish mind? And yet that's what he is. That's who he was. And that's who he is. Jesus is Lord. And whoever cries upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, whoever, anyone. And that name is Jesus you see Peter saying to them, there isn't a single soul, not even these very men who rejected Jesus in the flesh, whom God will not save, provided they cry out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Save me and cleanse me, for I am vile and full of sin. I'm a wretched, miserable sinner. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
as the, as the tax collector said in Luke chapter 18. That's apostolic preaching. It's full of Christ. It's full of scripture. It's full of the spirit. And it's full of the gospel of grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. Telling men and women that they are sinners. That they stand condemned by their own sin. By their own malice. Their own hatred of God. God came to dwell among men. And what did they do? Well, they killed him. That's how every sinner feels about God. They're not only rebels who want to reject his very law, but given the chance they would kill him. That's how deep your sin runs, even in your heart. That is what sin is. It is the hatred of God. It's even the murder of God in the heart of a sinner. But you see, Peter is saying, and I am saying along with him, that there is salvation for such a one as this, even those as sinful as that. It is the kind of thing, apostolic preaching, which reaches the heart, which convicts men of their sin. It makes them see their need of salvation. You see, it not only declares what salvation is, but it makes men feel it. And I ask you now in closing, I ask you all, has it done so for you? Do you know what these men knew, these hearers? Have you ever known true conviction of sin? Such that you could not stand it. And such that you could not escape of your own power. And have you cried out on the Lord and found in him a willing savior and friend of sinners. As these men found. One who is full of mercy and compassion. Oh, uh, they say and I say with them. Jesus stands in heaven even now ready to forgive. Even the vilest of sinners. There is no sinner so bad. That he won't accept him. No, not if he would forgive even those who crucified him in the flesh. There's no limit, you see, that he places on his mercy and his forgiveness. For he is full of both. Any and all who call upon him in faith by the Spirit, Jesus is Lord, will be saved. For no one has ever said Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And surely he is so. And surely he alone can save me. No one else. No other name in heaven or on earth by which men may be saved. But the name of Jesus. Do you know that? Have you been made to feel it? Not only that you're a miserable sinner. But that Jesus alone can save you. He's a willing savior. He bled and died that sinners might be made saints. Is there anything better in all the world? Anything more worthy of my time as a preacher and your time as the hearer? Is there anything beyond that in this life? Anything you would have me preach but this? Oh, I will not preach the wisdom of men, but I will preach this. Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is my heart's desire that every uh, one who sits under this preaching might be saved by that message. And along with Peter, I say to you all, repent. See the kind of live, uh, life we are meant to live in light of this message. See the kind of call that Jesus places upon his disciples. He calls us all to follow him, even to the end. He calls us to live and to die for him. Whatever there is that we might uh, suffer or do for him, we're willing. Repent, Jesus, or Peter says. Repent and be baptized. Come into the church. 
and you will be saved and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn 377.